0: What's up, world? We're here with the Free the Work podcast. With this episode, we're wrapping up Free the Work Focus Pride, our special mini-series supported by our friends at GLAAD, spotlighting some of today's leading LGBTQIA creators. For the finale, queer Ojibwe director Victoria Anderson Gardner chats with New Zealand-based Samoan artist Tanu Nano, who also founded FafSwag. A collective that celebrates LGBTQIA plus Pacific Islander culture. Together, they talk about Tanya's unique artistic inspirations, what decolonizing art means to them, and their hopes for indigenous storytelling.
1: Hi everyone, and thank you for joining us for the Free the Work podcast miniseries. It's supported by GLAD. If you're just getting familiar, Free the Work is a nonprofit global initiative and searchable talent discovery platform for underrepresented creators. And just a little disclaimer, we gotta say, the views and opinions of the guests do not necessarily state or reflect those of Free the Work. Hi, I'm Victoria Anderson Gardner, and I am an Ojibwe filmmaker, director, producer, and I currently am working on a couple independent projects, and I also, do a lot of contracts for other companies such as Crave or Netflix and just whatever little jobs I can find for myself. And here I am with Tanu Nano, the multi-talented filmmaker, visual artist, photographer, curator, and producer based in New Zealand, where he also founded FAF Swag, a vibrant collective that celebrates LGBTQIA plus Pacific Islander culture. We're so honored to have him here today. If you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, Tang.
2: Talo Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Tangango. Um, I am an artist, queer activist, and filmmaker from uh, ba- currently based in Mauna Kekea in Tamaki Makoto in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, my work currently is uh, based in the Pacific Diaspora here in Auckland.
1: All right. Uh, So, I guess kind of just what I want to start off with talking about is kind of just getting to know a little bit more about the work that you do, and also kind of explaining the mediums that you span across, because you span across a few mediums.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I don't know. I feel like that's a, um, what do you call it? I feel like that's a, an a natural state for most creatives today is that we're kind of occupying or moving through different um, modes of practice. And so when I look at my peer group, it's quite common for all of us to be doing everything all at the same time. <laughs> um, and I think it's part of like the interconnected world that we're kind of operating in as well but to say that I have a formal background in film um, I studied filmmaking here in Auckland and graduated from film school in like 2009 uh, which feels like a lifetime ago (laughs) Um, and that's mostly because it was Um, yeah I remember uh, graduating from film school and just feeling a little bit institutionalized um, through that process. It was very, um, it felt more bureaucratic than I thought filmmaking would actually feel. <laughs> um, and a lot of uh, what we were doing was very compartmentalised, um, mostly because they were training vocationally. So if you entered the school as a director of photography or a camera person, that your vocation was specialised. And so I came through as a writer and director. And so I, Entered hoping to like get my hands on a camera, and then they told me that I wasn't allowed to touch the camera, <laughs> that it wasn't my job; it was someone else's job. So I was like, "Oh, maybe I'm in the wrong place." And then I found out that my job was kind of just like this boring administration <laughs> of how to maneuver a camera or camera departments, and so I did that um, and had that experience, and I didn't feel like I. I grew a lot in in my training, but it wasn't until I was out in the practical world applying my skill that I actually felt like I learned a lot. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and so part of that kind of awful uh, anxiety of of feeling a little bit institutionalized um, ended up uh, kind of pursuing a... um, A career as a photographer and as an artist in the fine art world Um, and I don't I'm I'm very fortunate in that I had a lot of success in doing that so I won a couple of awards as a photographer and um, was able to like build a really sustainable art practice over the you know the last 10 years and and so art is the art world is kind of like my home now um, but in recent years, I've just been a bit more interested in returning to my film practice. And, and so I'm having this kind of full circle moment um, where I'm really interested in and in how I can apply all this like life experience and kind of accumulated skill back into my original passion, which is filmmaking.
1: So in regards to, I guess, like for what you're trying to apply your film to, what are like the projects that you're trying to apply that to now? Like that would, I guess, cross over into like other mediums.
2: Well, um, like I started my career um, in stills photography. Um, I wanted to take a step back from moving image um, and look at a, a singular frame and how can you tell a story if you only have one shot. Um, And so, you know, over the years, I've tried to refine that process. And then slowly, as I was moving through my practice, uh, my still photography practice slowly evolved into a moving image practice. And so I was slowly kind of um, modulating my way back to to cinema as a language. And so (laughs) for the longest time, I've just been producing these video installations uh, for galleries and for uh, public presentation. So I like to think of uh, cinema as this kind of textual, sculptural ob- object as well. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of my storytelling is presented in an installation context. Um, and in 2018, I had the the opportunity of working with Picky Films, which is Taika Waititi's production company, and we created an interactive documentary called uh, fastfakevogue.com which you can actually visit currently, it's a free interactive site, Um, and essentially it is five um, key stories from key figures from our ballroom community here in Aotearoa, and it's told for an interactive experience where you can um, watch them battle each other and then pick a winner and then uh, after you select a winner you get to see their backstory and it kind of peels away some of the storytelling layers and you get to have a more intimate experience with the with the person that you selected um you know it was it was quite a interesting way to come back to to filmmaking because um I was operating in a mode of documentary but then we were also innovating around the um the kind of technical delivery of the work which is not very conventional um and breaks a lot of tradition well at the time it did um in 2018 and so um (laughs) it was an interesting film to to tour in festivals because you had to present it in an interactive medium where people could play with the characters in them. And so often it was placed into their like virtual reality labs and, um, but then it also has this very traditional series of films after you complete the interactive components. Um, and I had such a great time with Picky um, the production company that we decided to start developing a feature film project from there. And so <laughs> that's kind of been the journey back to filmmaking. So for the last, I guess, three years, we've have been writing a film, and I'm just at a place where I'm—I don't know. It feels—I'm <laughs> not sure if you can relate to this, but like, it just feels like you've been working on it for so long that you, you just um can't wait to see it made.
1: <laughs> yeah, I have definitely. I've been on like a couple projects like that where. Sometimes it feels like you're not sure if it's ever actually going to get done.
2: <laughs> I <laughs> think then, that's my number one question to the producers. I was like, are we got, Are we still going to make this? Or kind of <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, honestly, I feel like that's just part of the industry for some projects, especially where you're like, you know what, we're just going to, we'll get back to that eventually. Where it's like, we're going to get it done eventually. Ugh. Yeah.
2: Well, I'm feeling pretty confident about this process. We're um we're at the script reading phase for this draft that we have currently. And so I've been told by a lot of other filmmakers that the, the writing process takes a long time, but once you get it moving, accelerates and moves really fast. Quite prepared for that.
1: I would say it's it's almost like overwhelming in a sense. I'm, I'm in, like, a similar place with another project of mine right now where we're kind of just getting to, like, pre-production after, like, writing for, like, three years as well. So it feels faster now, almost too fast, though, after going for, like, three years of just constantly developing it.
2: And it's such an intimate process. You become so attached to this. Almost like a child of yours, like
1: it's, just, it's your baby. It's your brain baby. <laughs> yeah. you know?
2: It's your feelings, baby.
1: This <laughs> <laughs> actually this kind of brings me nice back to I kinda wanna know like how you grew up, if you can tell me more about that. If the environment sculpted kind of interested to see what brought you to where you are now in regards to like what you're creating now and what's inspired you.
2: Yeah, well, I definitely identify as an immigrant and um, I was born in Samoa in the 80s and I migrated here as an infant. But I'm part of a tradition of migration from the Pacific to Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, that has been happening since, you know, the 40s. And initially our people were kind of bought here as indentured labour um, for like a failing economy. <laughs> and we did all the shitty jobs that people didn't want to do and so there is this legacy of migration and, and labor and I was just fortunate to be born in a time where I was part of a generation that had kind of uh, settled into teodoro in a way where I guess I had a lot more freedom and in terms of what I could choose as a pathway for myself, because previous generations had come to New Zealand and worked really hard and uh, helped to pump up the economy, but also built like a, a significant Pacific diaspora community here in Aotearoa. You know, I grew up with a childhood where I was always given permission to to explore things, uh, my creativity, in ways that didn't feel like it wasn't something I could do for a living. So I always acknowledge that privilege because I feel like my older siblings had a different pathway and they probably, you know, there's a lot of remittance here in New Zealand in terms of money that is generated or wealth that is generated amongst Pacific communities and then sent back to our people in the islands because of that. A lot of our people are often forced into jobs that they don't necessarily want to do as a passion, but um, it helps to, to support their families back in the islands. Yeah. So I just grew up in a context where I was just allowed or given permission to, to create or to pick a creative vocation as, as something I want to do with my life. (laughs) And then, I grew up in South Auckland, which is predominantly depicted in most dominant narratives here in, in New Zealand as like the ghetto, or the the place where crime and poverty stem from, um, and it has a, it's kind of shaped by a lot of all these negative stereotypes. But the people who live in that context never see it that way. They're always um, grateful for uh, for what access to resource they they have. And so <laughs> I always grew up in these two different worlds where the perception of the place where I come from was that it was dangerous. And But when I walked outside my house, it didn't feel that way. It felt like a, a Pacific village where people were connected and where people shared a lot of collective experiences. And so coming into my adulthood and, and working as part of a collective, these are all kind of cultural philosophical things where we practice this in our culture anyway. Collective practice is something that um I feel like my family taught me <laughs> just coming from a big family where it takes a village to make things happen, you know.
1: You can definitely relate in that sense of uh the outside people where you're from it seems way different than what it actually is. Um yeah. I I'm located in like I guess like central Canada area. A little bit more north and the reserves up here like the reservations where like the indigenous people are from people are always scared to come visit us meanwhile when you go there like when I go to my reserve it's all like my aunties and uncles and my cousins <laughs> but then people are like I don't know if I want to go there <laughs> yeah. like, I mean
2: there's ridiculous stories about white folk who when they drive through our neighborhoods they lock their cars and you know just all those like punchlines that you hear they get turned into like awful cultural jokes, you know. And it's um it's so weird because it's it's so detached from the lived reality of indigenous people here. Mm. And it's also part of this like colonial fabrication of reality. And they try to sell it back to us a lot. We're we're having to like undo some of those messages for our people, especially for young people. Um, Polynesians have the largest youth um, population in the country. And so most of our people are under the age of 25. And those stories or those impressions of who we are, they really have an impact on that group of people. So I just think that it's racist for starters, but like also. Just totally (laughs) unnecessary. Like, how about you just get in your car and come to this side of town? You'll be fine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. It's just colonial thought has made it seem like it's worse than it actually is. Yeah, totally. Well, moving moving a little bit away from that topic, um, you were talking about uh fast swag a little bit earlier, and I guess you kind of touched upon a little bit as to what it's about but could you tell me just a little bit more in detail about like the incarnation of it and just for listeners who don't know what exactly is it just in like a very more simple way but then you can go more in detail about it.
2: Sure, Um Swag is a queer Indigenous arts collective and we have 13 members. The ages start from 17 and finish around the early 40s so it's quite a age diverse group. And we're made up of members from different islands in the Pacific, including Aotearoa, which is New Zealand, uh, Samoa, Tonga, the Cook Islands, and Niue. Everyone lives in a context of the diaspora. And then everyone have, has their own individual arts practice as well. And so we all come from different industries, from uh, photography and digital arts to textile and design and crafting and and making adornments and all these kind of cultural practices that uh, people have pulled into their art practice and then we also have performers and theater makers and filmmakers as well and we started in 2012. Uh, We started as a social group really (laughs) we were all kind of compelled by this idea that there wasn't a space for queer creators to come together and and share space and stories and resources, and so we just used to hang out. And then over the years, we started to, I guess, create uh, artworks and stage some kind of social action in our communities around the issues that were prevalent at the time to to our group and we started to generate this online community. And we've also played a really significant role in establishing ballroom in Aotearoa, uh, which is something that traveled here in the 80s through the film Paris is Burning, and then became more popular in the 90s because of the internet. And so there were kids here in their garages and their basements um, voguing. And so we were one of the first groups of people to create a space for them to do that and to have a safe space where they could explore their identity through the culture of ballroom and through the language of Ogi. We've only recently this year withdrawn from ballroom community, because it's grown to a place now whether it's owned by the community. And so we don't need to have a presence there as a collective who take up so much space and we can kind of remove ourselves and just focus on on making art and getting back to the our core kind of passion, which is, yeah, which is being an arts collective.
1: <laughs> Actually, that's really nice that you're, it's reached that level to be able to like do that where it's like you've helped to create this safe space now you can, like, come back to, like, your own work now, too. So when you're working, what's your, like, artistic process and work, I guess, in regards to that? How would you define, I guess, like, the concept of decolonization? And how do you, I guess, wrestle with that? Because I know for myself, I, I have, like, my own thoughts and opinions about, like, the concept of decolonization. But it's different, like, around the world, too. So I'm really interested to hear about that.
2: Well, our collective have kind of reached this place where there's a tension in the notion of decolonization because uh, we're starting to recognize that undoing colonization feels like an impossible task. And so a lot of us have started to reposition ourselves into a new conversation around uh, re-Morwanification. So we, can't, we are Moana people, so we're ocean people. And how can we take that context and re-indigenize our experiences and our environments and our processes? So that way we're not constantly at tension with the impact of colonization, but we're creating for ourselves in a different uh, value system. And so <laughs> I think I'm at an age now where like, I, I sit a bit more comfortably with some of these notions I think in my early 20s there was like a a really harsh sense of like urgency and panic for a lot of Indigenous people to create methods of resistance and survival and I think a lot of us have kind of grown out of that because we're you know a lot of us in our 30s now and we're starting to think of ways where we can with the responsibility of undoing the the negative impacts of colonisation is no longer our job. (laughs) So, you know, explaining things to white people (laughs) where it gets so exhausting, it's just like, oh, that's actually not my job anymore.
1: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We're past that stage now. (laughs)
2: Yeah. And then, you know, the global pandemic really reshaped the world for a lot of Indigenous folk because um, FASTAG was operating in in a kind of state of hyper-visibility because of the internet. So we were always being watched and we were always having uh, social expectations placed on us. But then, the you know, uh, COVID happened and the pandemic happened and it created a moment of pause for all of us to really just reconsider some of the the values that we're interested in and also look at some of the systems that we had created for our productivity and for the creative environments that we have generated. And we were just like, some of these are hierarchical and some of them are like really colonial and they need to be dismantled and we need to operate in a more circular fashion where everyone has agency to make decisions, where everyone has autonomy to impact what it is that we're doing collectively as a group. And so in 2020, we were commissioned by the Sydney Biennale to do a project and we couldn't travel to Sydney anymore because the borders had closed. And so we just spent that time really just thinking about what does decolonization look like for us as artists? What does it look like for us as indigenous people? And one of the strategies that we adopted was this idea of reclaiming time. And so in my personal process, I'm quite a deep thinker. And before I used to try and force that process to be fast or to run at the same rate of productivity as like the internet. And it was just inhuman and unrealistic. And the idea of taking my time to just think through my creative ideas and my storytelling, that that for me felt like an indigenous practice of reclaiming time. And it's something that we all kind of adopted in this new kind of economy, creative economy. And so we just stopped doing a lot of things that were no longer serving our restitution or our search for joy <laughs> and pleasure from the things that we were creating as creators. And so it was just nice to, to kind of pause. It was really unfortunate in terms of the circumstance of how that happened. We also recognize our privilege here in New Zealand having Jacinda Ardern act so so quickly in terms of the pandemic and closing down the borders. And so there's a lot of privilege and freedom here that we were able to do that. It feels like such a luxury because there are parts of the world that were, were devastated by this experience. And so I don't want to wash that away. And I really want to acknowledge my privilege as well, that I had the freedom to do that. But it's definitely something that has informed my process now. And because Fastwag was kind of born on the internet and we had this hyper visible platform, we were often operating to the rhythm of the internet, which is super unhealthy. Because I think for three years, we were just so productive. We traveled the world, we did shows in Paris and in Europe and in Asia, and we performed in Las Vegas. There was like, We were just moving all the time and we were being consumed without recognizing the nature of these digital platforms is that someone is consuming you and so we were just like i don't want to be popcorn for someone anymore i just want to be popcorn for myself
1: oh i love that so much (laughs) i really like that concept of like reclaiming your time because i feel like as like indigenous people we operate on such a different time schedule than like the western world and like I feel like the western world has a hard time understanding that sometimes but it's like we don't have to conform to their schedules it's like this is how we operate and this is how you're gonna get the best out of us is if you allow us to operate on our own time because that's just how we have worked I I love that I love that
2: (laughs) I feel like those colonial timeframes are they're unhealthy. <laughs> like, they work for capitalism, but they don't work for being a human, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly it. That kind of brings me, that actually kind of ties into this next question a bit. So in your 2010 exhibition, You Love Me Fresh, you had a video installation uh, which included a projection of the words, your cultural experience makes me cynical, violent and resentful would you feel comfortable to talk a little bit about the real emotions that come from colonization? And I know like these emotions like are often uncomfortable to white settlers, but I definitely think it's, this is like a space where we can have like a real discussion. I feel like yeah. we can have some really good discussion points about this.
2: Yeah. I'm, I made that work like 10 years ago and yeah. I was a lot younger and I was just full of energy, you know? I was definitely in a place in my career where I was like, hey, I've got something to say. But (laughs) it kind of reminds me of that because I think some of my earlier works were really confrontational. And I think because I had a lot of energy and things that had kind of built up over the span of my lifetime. But I guess I I made that work, when I think about it now, I made that work because I really wanted to unburden myself of, of certain cultural responsibilities. And I feel like as Indigenous storytellers, we're often given two key responsibilities in the conversation of colonisation. And the first is like dismantling false narratives about Pacific identity. Like that's always our job. And then the second job is representation and making sure you create something that represents the voices of everybody which is impossible. But it's always, you know, we're always expected or our stories and our art that we create is always expected to hold that for people. And I remember just feeling a bit exhausted (laughs) and super resentful of these like colonial expectations because it meant that we were catering to white folk (laughs) and that we were helping them to understand our world where that was not our job. <laughs> I've gotten a bit more comfortable with presenting these kind of pushbacks to colonization in, in my own practice, and really just taking a hard line about what it is that we do want to do. And I always think about the idea that if we can unburden ourselves of those responsibilities or that baggage, then we can un- unlock our creative freedom to see ourselves depicted in every context you know I feel like white culture is allowed to have textured nuanced conversations but when it comes to us we have to reinforce these blanket universal narratives that get placed on top of us and I just didn't want to do it. <laughs> and I, I still don't want to do it. I, I try to imbue my work with messages that are, are specifically for Indigenous people. And I want to create things that nourish them and, and they feel connected to and that are textured and nuanced and specific to a, a context, you know, and not just like speaking on behalf of all Polynesians and all <laughs> Moana people. It's so impossible. Yeah. But, But I feel like the industry still wants us to do that. They're like, oh, what is a Pacifica person? And I'm like, well, in the Pacific, there are all these individual cultures who I don't even know what the question is. (laughs) Yeah, and it's been really important to understand that for me as an artist to be able to protect things that I, I feel are important to me. And you can see with some of the content that's created in this country that it often struggles we're straddling those two things the old narratives and representation for everybody and I think if artists and filmmakers and storytellers are just given permission to to speak for themselves (laughs) that's a good place for us to start you know
1: yeah yeah it definitely is I think, like, in regards to just that topic, too, not only how it, like, I guess, influences, like, the film work and, like, the artistic work that you do, you also teach. Can you talk about your work as a teacher and how your background in queer activism influences your teaching?
2: Right. I'm super judgmental of my own duty, Um, I'll just just get that out of the way. I mean, I started as a photography teacher for um, the Monaco Institute of Technology here in Tamaki Makoto. And it was hard, you know, I tried to design papers around getting students to look at aesthetic and the way they kind of position their storytelling through the lens. And most of them were like, oh, I'm, I'm just here to learn how to use the camera. <laughs> I'll just be like, oh, okay. But I remember the curriculum was really pushing for people to unpack storytelling and look at the power that is kind of connected to this ability to capture someone's attention and tell them something. That's always been something that I've felt connected to as someone, who, as a mentor who, who wants to pass on some type of skill or vocational training to the next generation. I recently was at the University of Auckland at the design school, helping helping students who were creating systems for communities and for organizations as well. And the idea or the philosophy behind the program was getting students to recognize different intersections of accessibility You know, I always approach it from my queer lens as a queer person. That if you're gonna design systems, they can't be gendered systems that are specifically just for men and women. That they have to be more inclusive and more reflective of the environment that these systems are being created for. (laughs) So, I don't know. I don't want to get too much into the teaching part because I feel like it might
1: get boring. (laughs) No, I understand what you mean. I really appreciate that, though, too, um, just like that last part of not having gendered systems, because if you, like, just go back into, like, our histories as Indigenous people, we didn't have this binary that we now, so that affects so much in regards to literally every way of life, if you really think about it.
2: Yeah, and design is one of these things where it's everywhere, And it's created in a way that is supposed to be invisible, but subconsciously we know that it's there and it is also conditioning us socially. So yeah, it's just about awareness and getting people to be, to practice more mindfully, especially today. Like we can't afford to be excluding anyone from any social experience.
1: Oh, it's so true. Honestly, I really appreciate these types of like conversations because it's really, it's really nice to like talk to other like indigenous queer creatives, especially like around the world, like you're over in New Zealand and I'm in Canada and we're having this sort of conversation and kind of just like in regards to that topic. I know filmmaking can often be like just you and an open page or like you in like an editing bit and there really aren't that many names. Well, there's starting to be more, but there haven't like in past years, there hasn't been too many names in the indigenous filmmaking community. How do you combat that loneliness of being an artist in this space?
2: Well, I think of two things. And I always, when I practice in an indigenous way, so practicing collectively is what helps to break me out of the isolation of working autonomously. Cause you're right, the industry is so, such a baby and it's so tiny and it's also global as well. And so at the same time that it's hyper-connected, it's still really young. (laughs) And we're all, we all have to support one another. I've started practicing this thing, you know, I've consumed, I'm 38. I've consumed 30 years of content of like white narratives, like Pakia European settler narratives. And I just refuse to consume that content anymore now that I have a choice. So if if a film doesn't have, um, like if it's only cis white people, I won't watch it. <laughs> if it's only men, <laughs> I won't watch it. Um, and I've just like decided that the only things that I want to support and put my money behind are other Indigenous people of colour narratives because that's what I want to see because like we've seen white people like, Colonize space and have a midlife crisis and fall in love and we've seen every possible live scenario uh, between you know karen and paul and i'm just like okay how about we just start seeing you know putting our money where our mouth is and and getting behind indigenous storytellers and um supporting them with our coin (laughs) and with our attention because i think that's more valuable like and i think the only way we can combat this like limited amount of content that we're allowed to consume is by valuing that content you know and making sure that we pay for it that we respect it (laughs) And, and recognize if it's not for us, then there's probably someone in our community that it is for. And we can identify those people and be like, hey, have you seen this thing? Check it out. It's, it's not for me, but you might like it. <laughs> um, and stop watching white people. <laughs> Sorry. That's kind of my takeaway. I just don't want to watch Karen anymore. She's just, <laughs> hi.
1: <laughs> oh, that's so true. I just want a wholesome, like, Indigenous love story. Without any of like, yes. the, like negative stereotypes of oh like, my God. like drunken people or something to do with that, I just want like something wholesome. Yeah. I want, to, I want to well, see someone braiding each other's hair. Yeah, like, like <laughs> go to a powwow together or like some For sort real. of thing. I just need something wholesome.
2: <laughs> yeah, I I want to see our people in every context possible, like and flourishing and no more of these like deprivating sad narratives of survival and struggle and like all that stuff is really important it's it has value but it's not all that we are and that we can be and i love some of the indigenous like animation that is coming up around the world at the moment it's like it's exciting because like i feel like animation allows you to imagine totally different worlds that sometimes are tied to our culture and our indigenous ways of being and I would love to see that <laughs> I want to see more of that yeah would, I'm excited by content like that
1: I think too I feel like there's definitely like I don't want to say like a resurgence in a way but there's some sort of I feel like we're going uphill in a good way if that makes sense yeah like there's just more and more content being pushed out which is really a nice feeling but also like i just need more
2: yeah i mean i love i love imaginative for this reason yeah this is a festival that is profiling indigenous digital makers and not just filmmakers not just traditional filmmakers but like people who are approaching storytelling in a totally different way and as a festival it's one of my favorites and we took a film there in 2018 and just being connected globally with other Indigenous folk and being in a room full of Indigenous folk, it was amazing. It changed my life.
1: Which, uh, which film was that for?
2: Uh, so that was for the interactive documentary that we took there in, I think it was 2018.
1: What was the, what was the name of that film? It
2: was called FasagVogue.com.
1: Okay. I, I may have missed that because I actually, I had a film playing on Imaginative that's been here as well. Oh, wow. So it's like, whatever, like, I wonder if we cross paths at some point. Potentially.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was there for a week and I also got to go to a vocal, like the great Canadian vocal, which was amazing. Oh,
1: I, Well, hopefully, once COVID is a little bit better, we'll be able to cross paths again at some point here.
2: <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, hospitality is part of our cultural language, so we love to host here out here, also.
1: I will definitely remember that, <laughs> um, and that goes for here too. If you if you ever visit Northern Canada, we also practice hosp- hospitality up here. But just like going, just going off of that, and kind of just starting to wrap things up, just a little bit more. I know that there's undeniable hope real intangible hope for Indigenous communities as we've been saying in regards to that what is your dream in regards like for yourself or for your community or for like all Indigenous people if you have anything to say about that
2: my biggest hope is that we can wrestle back ownership of our stories away from the colonizers, essentially. And when I say the colonizers, I'm talking about the big machines that financially benefit from taking our stories and obscuring them or making them different to what they actually are, or telling our stories on our behalf. I just hope we get control back of our narratives and and that we get permission to tell them ourselves. That's my biggest dream for indigenous people, that we get to tell our stories. Ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Ourselves. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, I also have that dream and that hope. If you look at it, me and you, we're already doing that already ourselves, and we're yes. just gonna continue to do it. I uh, I just
2: wanted to say thank you again for all of your time and your energy and your hospitality and hosting me as part of this conversation. It's been a joy. And I hope we get to have more conversations.
1: I love to hear you go about the work because you get so caught up in like your own bubble of like where you're at that you like I haven't really looked around the world to see the other things happening so it's really nice to have these conversations thank you to free the work for having us and be sure to search free the for more filmmakers to work with and follow the free the work podcast on all podcast platforms so tune in to tune into all the episodes of the mini-series
0: Thank you for tuning into our special Pride series. Don't forget to follow at Free the Work and at GLAAD on all social platforms to stay up to date on what we're up to next. Till next time, this has been Free the Work Focus, Pride, supported by Glad.